Parents, if you have children ages 3 to 7 and you would like them to participate in Children's Church, they are dismissed at this time. Nurseries are also available for children under the age of 3 next door. Please use those if you need to. If the rest of you would take out your Bibles and turn once again this week to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, because we are going to hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Do not test the Lord your God, as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word as you promised to do. And Father, again, we pray that because we have been in your word, uh, that we would leave different people, changed people, that your word would do its work in our hearts, uh, make the changes it needs to be so that we can be more the people that you call us to be and do the things that you call us to do. So we entrust ourselves now to you and the work of your spirit and the work of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. In most translations of the Bible, verse 16 that we read this morning begins a new paragraph, a new thought unit, though there are no paragraph markings in the original Hebrew. But the new thought is this, do not put the Lord your God to the test, as they did at Massau. Now, we need to know what happened at Massau, what happened there, how did the people test the Lord? And to get that story, we have to go back, and you can turn there if you want, to Exodus chapter 17. It tells of the time that God provided water for his people from a rock. But I don't want you to get this confused with what we looked at a few weeks ago. When God also brought water from the rock for his people, he told Moses to speak to the rock. Moses struck it instead, and we talked about that event. That happened at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the desert. This event in Exodus 17 takes place just after God has safely led them uh, out of Egypt. And so we go to the past again. We look at what's already happened with this hope that we'll learn from the past so that our present can be different, so that our future can be different. Because we learn from the past, we can be more the people that God calls us to be right now and into the future. So Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1, tells the story of how these people put the Lord to the test. I want to read it to you, beginning in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They They camped at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, 
Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I'll stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the water and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Lord, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? There's so much we could talk about in this passage, but unfortunately this isn't the passage for the day. So we're just going to focus on the reason that Moses takes the people back in time to this event. It's because they tested the Lord. The people who put their trust, who put God to the test in this passage are the very people who had seen all God's miracles in Egypt. They had seen the Nile turn to blood. All the plagues they had seen with their own eyes. They had seen how the angel of death miraculously had passed over every house that applied the blood of the lamb to the door. They had seen all of that. They had only recently walked through the, through the, through the Red Sea on dry ground. Perhaps they arrived having passed through the water a little dustier on the other side because God divided the Red Sea for them. They had picked from the ground with their hands and eaten the manna that God had provided for them from heaven. The quail that God caused to descend on the camp at night. They had eaten the quail and it had satisfied them. They had seen the cloud of God, the glory of God in the cloud leading them by day and the pillar of fire by night. All of these things these people had seen. So how could they ask such a question? Is the Lord with us or not? And how were these people any different from the Pharaoh that they had left behind? The evil man that had mistreated them and and enslaved them, the man from whom they wanted to escape. His heart was hard against the Lord and every miracle that he saw God perform. One time Pharaoh called his magicians, as he often did, to imitate the miracles that God was performing. But on one occasion, his own magician said, this is the finger of God. We can't do it. This is the work of God. And yet Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. How are these people any different? They've seen the finger of God and yet their hearts are hard. They test the Lord. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, they doubt his presence with them. They're not different from Pharaoh. Not when it comes to the hardness of heart anyway. We can fast forward well over a thousand years later and we come to the time of Jesus and we still see that God's people have hard hearts. Jesus in Matthew 13 quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 and he says this, For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their See with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So as it was in the past, so it continues to be in the future. It seems as if a hard, calloused heart is never far away from God's people. People who have seen the finger of God. And unless you and I can demonstrate this morning that we, as human beings, are 
qualitatively different from all the human beings that have ever gone before us, then we need to be interested in what causes a hard heart. And I'm not talking about microevolution here, microevolution, just small changes within the same thing. I'm talking about macroevolution, where the heart becomes something new, something different than it ever was before. If you and I can't demonstrate that that evolution has taken place in us, then we can't set our Selves apart from Pharaoh. We can't set ourselves apart from the ancient Israelites. We can't set ourselves apart from the people that saw Jesus and his life and his ministry. And so you and I need to be on guard against having a heart that becomes hard and calloused. A heart that tests the Lord and asks him, are you with me or not? The word translated calloused that Jesus uses in that passage, it has two definitions, and both of them are vivid. The first definition of callous means to grow thick. And that is, of course, why it's translated callous, because it refers to the skin. You know, that's grown thick and hard, and you can poke a pen in a callous, and you can't even feel it. Gross, right? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. What a horrible image. Yeah, we don't want that in our lives. Metaphorically, it means to become dull, like in having a fat head or a thick skull, or being a numb skull. Now I know what my dad meant. (laughs) Nothing gets through to the brain. The second definition is this. It means to become impervious, which means that water can't pass through it. Whatever is impervious is impregnable and impermeable and impenetrable. It's watertight, water-resistant, repellent. And so both of these definitions vividly describe for us what can happen to the human heart. And remember, we're talking here about religious people. And so the truth about God, his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his judgment, those truths don't penetrate the heart anymore because the heart is too hard. It repels those truths about God. The truth about Christ and his sin-crushing, debt-paying, death-defeating, life-giving work on the cross doesn't penetrate the heart anymore. Our hearts repel those truths. And if the truth can't penetrate, the truth can't get into your heart and my heart, then faith can't get out. The faith by which we live our lives, the faith by which we make our choices. So what makes for a calloused heart? Hebrews 3.13 says that we should encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so we're writing to believers, encourage each other daily so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So there's no surprise there. Sin in our lives hardens our hearts. Sin by sin, layer after layer, our hearts become hardened. Specifically, Hebrews 3 says, because sin is deceptive. It tricks us. Sin promises us great things. Freedom, hey, fun. You know, pleasure, success. And so what do we do? We step out of God's way and we step over into sin's way because of what it promises to us. I am an old car fanatic. I always have been. And so my mom and dad bought me a chitty-chitty bang-bang lunchbox for first grade because it had a picture of an old car on it and because chitty chitty bang bang 
was my very, very favorite movie. And in one scene in that movie, if you, have you seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? You know, the black-clad child catcher hides the black iron bars of his black wagon that he uses to lock up the children that he steals. He, he disguises it behind brightly colored, brightly painted panels. And then he sticks a flower in his black hat and he skips down the street of the town saying, lollipops, get your lollipops, ice cream. And so Jeremy and Jemima, the only two free children in all the town, they see the child catcher. Only be, He doesn't look like a child catcher because he's got that pretty hat and his wagon looks so beautiful. And they know what their father told them. Stay where you are. Do not come out of your hiding place. But the child catcher looks so pretty. And he offers lollipops and ice cream and he lures them out. And Jeremy and Jemima, they, they rush out from their hiding place and they walk up the ramp into the wagon where they believe they're going to find lollipops and ice cream. But the moment they are inside the wagon, the child catcher closes and locks the iron gate. The false sides fall away, and only then do the children know that they've been tricked and trapped. There are no lollipops. There is no ice cream. And so Jeremy and Jemima clutch the iron bars, and they cry for help as the child catcher speeds away with them. See, that is the deceitfulness of sin. We choose it over God because it lures us. It offers us what looks good, something that we want, something that God, we think, won't offer to us. And so we harden our hearts against what we know we are supposed to do and go running after sin over and over and over again. But one day, the false sides, the false panels, they're going to fall away. And we will see the prison of sin that we are in. The deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts. What else hardens hearts? Yours and mine. Jesus tells a parable about seeds. And he compares the seeds to the word of God. Some of the seeds fell on thorny ground. And Jesus said this, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So there's something else that hardens our heart. Wealth. And by wealth, before you exclude yourself, oh, I'm not a wealthy person, it, it just means having a lot of stuff. Being surrounded by it. Trying to get more of it. Being dependent on it. And that describes all of us who are here, hoping to finally have some happiness through it. That chokes out the truth of the Word of God so that it does not penetrate our hearts anymore. What else hardens the heart? Colossians 2, chapter 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So when you and I, and we do this, accept or to some extent mix together with our Christianity philosophies of this world, Philosophies that have human origin, our hearts are hardened against Christ and his all-sufficiency. Hmm, we think maybe there is truth other than what God has told us. What else hardens the heart? Ephesians 4, 
you were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's something else that hardens your heart and mine. It's our own deceitful desires. We want what we want, but what we want is not necessarily what we need or what's good for us. And so trying to get those things corrupts us and hardens our heart toward God. If you focus on the slights in your life, if you focus on what you don't have instead of all you do have in Christ, then your heart will get hard and bitter, and you'll test the Lord. So you see what builds up those calluses, what makes our hearts impenetrable. All these things work together. The wealth we have, the wealth we want hardens our heart against the one who praised the widow for giving everything she had. Who said to the rich young man, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, follow me. We harden our heart against that. The worldviews that we embrace are mixed with God's truth to make our lives a little easier. If I would just accept this, then I would be more acceptable. I would appear more tolerant in my life would be a little bit easier. Instead of listening to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Going after our own desires. Hardens our heart against the one before whom we are to give our lives as living sacrifices. The one who said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The one who said, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then sometimes life just beats us up and it batters us. And we just harden our hearts against the one that we think let it happen because he doesn't appear to care for us. And I think that's one reason Scripture includes the story of the physical storm that the disciples faced. A furious storm, a storm so great that it almost swamped their boat and they thought they would die in the middle of it. They would drown And where was Jesus when the storm was going on? He was asleep in the boat. So the disciples wake him up and say, Don't you care if we drown? And Jesus' response was this, Where's your faith? And then he spoke to the storm and he calmed it. But we give him this test. Well, if I could see, Lord, then I would believe. If I could hear your voice speaking to the storm, and if I could see the waves calm down, then I would believe. I would not put you to the test, Lord, if I could see, because my heart would not be so hard then. Then I would believe that you are with me. If only I could see. But are you sure? Should you still be holding out for and hoping in that seeing is believing test? Jesus once healed a man. Demon-possessed, he was blind, he was mute. And when the people saw this miracle, they were amazed when they saw the man seeing and, and heard him speaking. And they said, maybe, just maybe, this Jesus is the Messiah. 
But when the religious leaders, the Pharisees, heard about it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus said this, I tell you, every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the powerful work, the clear and evident work of the Spirit of God saying, God didn't do it, Satan did it. And so again, you and I are reminded that seeing is not believing. Seeing was not believing for the Israelites in the desert. It wasn't for the people who watched the life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus, and it isn't for us. And so you and I should stop holding that out as a condition for the Lord. If I could see then I would believe. Because that's putting God to the test. And you are off the hook to obey God, off the hook to live by and for the gospel until God passes the test and shows you something. But the truth is many, many people saw and they did not believe because they didn't want to believe. Because belief and faith interrupts our lives. It does. They did not want the submission that comes along with faith. Not my will, Lord. Yours be done. They didn't want the sacrifice that comes along with faith. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. They didn't want the surrender that comes along with faith. Paul says, yes, everything else is worthless, when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. That's surrender. They did not want the sold outness that comes along with faith. Paul writes, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law to win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law to win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's sold outness. Submission, sacrifice, surrender, sold outness. This is not an attractive life for many people because it's too selfless and it's too others centered. And the answer to the question, yeah, but what's in it for me, isn't satisfactory enough. Not seeing is not why you or anyone else doesn't believe. People don't believe because it isn't convenient to believe. Because it costs too much to believe. You don't believe because it's too humiliating for you to believe. Your pride takes such a hit when you actually believe and confess that you believe in this day and age, in this God thing. And so we put God to the test. We make demands of Him. Ones that we're confident that He won't come through on. But why should He? And who are you? Who am I? 
Who is anyone else to make such demands of God? How are we some kind of special case? More special than anyone else who has ever lived that you and I get to require more of God than God has already seen fit to give us. What has he not already proven? What? Jesus, the miracle working Messiah, finally said to those who refused to believe, the religious leaders who said to him, we want you to show us a sign. Jesus said, no, wicked, adulterous generation. You ask for a miraculous sign. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus gave his life on the cross. Buried three days, the Son of God, dead, in a tomb. The third day, he raised from the dead, back to life. He ascended to heaven. Right now, where is he? He sits on the right hand of God the Father. What's he doing? Praying, interceding for you and for me. Why is that not enough? Why do we put him to the test? What more could he do? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. God says so. Jesus says so. When Satan tempted Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God, When he said to Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle, the highest point on the temple, throw yourself down. And then God will have to prove that he loves you by commanding his angels to come and catch you up in their arms so that you don't even strike your foot against the stone. What did Jesus say to Satan? He quoted this verse. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When Moses gave the people the command that we've read today, they were still living by faith. You know, some sort of faith caused him to follow Moses out of the promised, out, out of Egypt because the promised land was ahead. They wandered in the desert for 40 years by faith. They thought the promised land was ahead. Now they stand on the very verge of the promised land and they can look over and see it, but it's not theirs yet, so they're still living by faith. But Moses speaks here in this passage of a day that is sure to come. When the promised land will no longer be a hopeful yet unfulfilled promise, but a certain reality. Soon they're going to be living in the abundance of the promised land. Verse 10 and 11 describes it. The Lord's going to be with them. He's going to give them a land with large flourishing cities they did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things they did not provide. Wells they did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves they did not plant. These people are going to eat and they are going to be satisfied. They're no longer going to be wandering around in the desert like nomads. They're going to be planted as citizens in their own country. They no longer have to fear Egypt. That's in the past. Or the the, the lands, the nations they would supplant because God is giving them the land and he would keep them and protect them. It's going to be great in the promised land. And yet it seems that Moses indicates that even in that place, even in the promised land, where their faith had become sight, where seeing is believing, there would still be danger that would follow them. But the danger would not come from the outside. The danger would come from within. My father-in-law always says this, always has, ever since I've been in the family. He says this, my problem is this, no matter where I go, there I am. (laughs) No matter where I go, there I am. 
And so it is for the Israelites. They, they could leave Egypt behind. They could leave the desert behind. They could leave their enemies behind. But no matter where they go, there they are. And inside them is the heart that they carry. What's in it? So you can have nothing but dust and the desert and put the Lord to the test. Or you can have everything you could possibly need in the promised land and still put the Lord to the test. Because the test doesn't come from what we have or don't have. It comes from what we believe or what we do not believe. And when the people move into the land, they won't be testing the Lord anymore for water or for food. They'll have plenty of both. They won't be testing the Lord for a place to finally rest so they don't have to wander around anymore. They'll have that. So why will they test the Lord? Maybe it's because the Lord has important work for them to do. Through them, the Lord intends to bless every nation on the face of the earth. And the material blessings that He will provide for them It's so they are free to do this very important work to which he has called them. And here's where the test will come. Maybe they will be afraid that God can't do it. But the world and all of it is too big for God to conquer, too big for God to bless. They might act in that unbelief and think that God cannot or will not accomplish it through them or or they might in their unbelief test the Lord with their grumbling and complaining about the work and say we don't want to do it. But they must not test the Lord their God. Instead they are called to live in the land by faith. Faith that God can and will accomplish this great work through them and the same is true for you and for me every day we live. In our land, test our faith. Is the Lord relevant to my life again today? And every part of it and every relationship in it, is he with me? Is he relevant? Is the Lord relevant to the lives, the people around whom I find myself every single day? The answer is yes. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Can the Lord work through my living out the gospel through my speaking the gospel into the lives of those around me. Yes, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Ours is not to test if he can. That's not our place, to test if he can. Our job, as we live by faith in the land with the gospel, is to prove that he will. We don't test if we can, if he can, we prove that he will. So you and I put the testing aside and make it a settled matter in your life and in your heart. The Lord is with me. Do you believe that? Then live like he is with you. Work like he is with you. And through your faith and through your belief, you will prove his power and his faithfulness to those around you. Let's pray together. Father, we confess before you now that you do not need to do anything other for us than what you have already done. And Lord, we so rejoice in the work that your love 
for us has driven you to do. Lord Jesus, to leave the riches and the glory and the splendor of heaven to come and live on this earth and die on the cross. What more could you do to demonstrate your love for us? Leaving your spirit, your spirit indwelling us, what more could you give to us than your very own power living in us and working through us? Lord, when you said from the cross it is finished, it's true. You've done everything that needs to be done. You've given us everything you need to give us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would set aside the testing. And all of us, Lord, in small ways, we're like the Israelites, we're like all the people we've looked at this morning. We doubt you. We doubt your presence with us. We doubt your love for us. So we put you to the test. We say, Lord, if you are real, prove it. Fix it the way I want. Lord, if you want me to believe in you, help us put that testing aside. Lord, with confidence, know that you are present with us. Know that your will and your way is far superior to ours. And that we will follow where you lead and that we will live as people in this land. And we pray, Lord, that this city will be a different place. Because we are living here, not testing you, but proving you. Proving your faithfulness and your power and your love over and over to a city who needs to know your love and your faithfulness. Prove it through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.